Hi, Fresh Head listeners. It's Will. As we near the end of 2022, I wanted to take a minute to ask for your help. You're listening to us right now for free. In fact, all of our content is open access and freely available. That includes the 40 new episodes we produced this year, as well as over 300 episodes across our entire catalog. However, it's not free to create, produce, and publish Fresh Head. We are funded by the generous donations from listeners like you. So if you would like to support independent media, or perhaps have used FreshEd in your classes, or just simply love our show, then please make a donation. You can do so at freshedpodcast.com donate. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com donate. Thanks for your support. And now on with today's episode. This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today we look at a UNESCO development project started in the early 1950s in central Mexico that promoted the idea of fundamental education. My guests, Luis Urieta and Judith Landeros, critique the common narrative of the project, revealing problematic deficit perspectives as well as nuanced counter-stories of silenced voices. Regional Center for Fundamental Education in Latin America was created in 1950. It came out of UNESCO as a, a center, regional center, that would provide programs to alphabetize communities, so literacy programs. So, Educación Fundamental or Fundamental Education is what the CREFAL right, um, called the type of education program they were going to implement, which, you know, focused on different areas of like health, rural economy, familial structures, recreation, and basic knowledge, which was like basic like literacy. Luis Urieta is an indigenous Latino interdisciplinary researcher. He currently holds the Charles H. Spence Sr. Centennial Professorship in Education at the University of Texas at Austin, where Judith Landeros is a doctoral student in the Cultural Studies and Education program with a certificate in Native American and Indigenous Studies. Their new article, which we discuss in today's episode, is featured in the August issue of the Comparative Education Review. Luis Urieta and Yudi Landros, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hello, thank you for having us. Hi, Will. Thank you for inviting us. Congratulations on your co-written article. It's really fantastic. I've been so lucky to be able to interview multiple people in this special collection or this special volume. And you two have done this really great sort of look at the history of a particular center in Mexico. So for listeners who probably haven't read this article, can you explain what the Regional Center of Fundamental Education for Latin America was? And and in particular, the, the center that was in Mexico that you looked at. Sure. The CREFAL, the Centro Regional de Educación Fundamental para América Latina, or the Regional Center for Fundamental Education in Latin America, was created in 1950. It came out of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, as a, a center, regional center, that would provide programs to alphabetize communities, so literacy programs, uh, to fight disease, to improve the use of technology in communities, and to elevate the socioeconomic levels of different 
uh, regional, mostly rural communities throughout the world. Mexico solicited this center in 1950 and it was granted to Mexico and it started in May of 1951 in Pátzcuaro, Michoacán. Okay, so UNESCO is sort of creating these centers. The Mexican government applies for one of these centers to be built. Who else was involved? in the centers like you know like so the literacy program or the disease prevention program who were the actors involved that actually sort of enacted some of these programs so there were many actors or many people you know involved in the program from more of an administrative perspective right from like a recruitment perspective of bringing in uh potential teachers and educators assessment you know uh folks who would do site visits researchers from universities, particularly in the U.S., and, yeah, those who oversaw the program in itself and those who developed the curriculum. So there were many actors and different moving pieces um, based on the archives, you know, that we've looked at, as well as, you know, the Crefal history of how, you know, they tell their own story. It's quite interesting. I mean, the, the idea that you went back and actually looked at all these documents. Where were these documents? Like, what archives exist, that house documents from the 1950s. The Crefal has a fairly extensive archive. You know, they kept meticulous notes about. A lot of them were handwritten. Uh, they have a, an extensive iconographic archive with photographs, a lot of them undated and, you know, without locations. So it's fairly unorganized. I happened to stumble upon it during my fieldwork in the community of uh, San Miguel Nocutsepo, which is the focal community in this article, uh, during a Fulbright year that I was there between 2009 and 2010, uh, I heard a lot about the Crefal from community members. And so I went into the actual center, to the library, and uh, I met some of the folks there, uh, in particular, uh, Sandra Piñon Guia, who then allowed me access to the archive and was very helpful in finding for me a lot of the archive uh, materials related to the community of San Miguel Nocutsepo. But even looking through the iconographic you know, images, a lot of them are numbered. But again, the contextualization of a lot of the archive is, is mm. not there. So a lot of it was piecing together the information that I had just on, on, on our own uh, later yeah. with uh, Judith's uh, very important help in this project as well. I mean, what a find to come across this archive. I mean, frustrating because it's not, you know, it's sort of unprocessed, let's say, and there's a lot of gaps, but I mean, just an amazing sort of find in a way. So so obviously the center itself as a physical entity still exists and the library, and so perhaps there's still sort of a geographic imprint on these different communities or on this particular community. How long did the project actually run for? Well, there were different phases. That's something to um, like mention that there were different phases of the program. And as they were, you know, because this was an experimental, you know, program, right? Like it's even quoted like that in some articles I've written about it. But the phases with the different phases, there were different goals. So that's something that, you know, it's important to mention. And as far as the years, I think Dr. Rita can tell, you know, say more about that, but definitely... As the fourth, right now it's in the fourth phase or, or the last phase of its current state. But when it started, it was with like, you know, the idea of implementing fundamental education with like these different areas. And then it started just focusing more on like literacy, you know, and just adult literacy. So, so the center itself, Crefal, is still ongoing to this day? 
Yeah, so it's a physical entity. It has a, a campus that was granted to the entity by former Mexican president Lázaro Cárdenas. It was one of his sort of like a plantation home called La Quinta Herendira. And, um, you know, in the campus grounds is the library and the, the archive. Uh, it also has a lot of classroom space because after the 1990s, it was declared an autonomous institution that receives, you know, government funding and other types of funding. They host degree programs, certification programs, and also regional conferences. For example, in 2010, when I was there, they hosted Latin American regional conference on intercultural mm. and multilingual education that brought in educators from throughout the Americas. Amazing, right? I mean, it's over 70 years, it's still going on. Is UNESCO still involved? Less directly than it originally was, but it's definitely connected to that uh, history, to that entity, and it prides mm. itself in being uh, one of its institutions that was created from it. You know, it started, you said, in the 1950s, early 1950s, 1951, exactly. Was this connected to sort of Cold War movements happening in the world at that time? It was definitely connected to movements, right? Um, UNESCO was created in 1945, right after World War II, in the UK by, you know, the UK and, and the US and China and other countries that were part of the Western allies. It was created to promote world peace, promote education programs, to promote cultural programs, communication, international communication. A lot of it was uh, geared toward countries that were considered to be underdeveloped and were at uh, risk of becoming more influenced by the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. Uh, and so it was a way of promoting Western uh, capitalist ideals and safeguarding particular regions of the world that were potentially vulnerable to communist and socialist influence. It's quite interesting. And I guess Mexico, at least from the U.S.'s point of view, was sort of an area close to home that needed to you know, secure its borders in a way from that communist threat. So, you know, quote unquote, communist threat. It's an interesting history, you know, and I'm sure there's other examples where UNESCO was involved in, in similar sort of projects. Before we really dig into the project itself, I guess we have to sort of think through what this notion of fundamental education is. To be honest, I, I don't think I've ever come across that before. You know, what is fundamental education, at least as defined by UNESCO back in the 1950s? So, educación fundamental or fundamental education is what the CREFAL right, um, called the type of education program they were going to implement, which, you know, focused on different areas of like health, rural economy, familial structures, recreation, and basic knowledge, which was like basic like literacy. And those were all the different components of fundamental education with the purposes, again, to promote the development of the individual, the, you know, socioeconomic, you know, development of communities, because communities were seen that there was like some kind of problem, right? That there were all these issues going on and they needed to be fixed. And it was done from a fundamental education is grounded from this perspective of like objective understandings, right? Of learning um, or what success is. And also, you know, that people's lives would improve once they have something that they don't have, right? Because they're seen as like missing these aspects in their life. That's what we, you know, brought in deficit, right? Thinking about uh, the communities, right? That they were approaching with fundamental education. So fundamental education was, was going to like fill the gaps that this community didn't have. It was providing something 
that was in deficit. The assumed gaps that uh, UNESCO and, and whoever the partners were assumed to exist. And if I may add, Mexico also had a vested in interest in creating this center because it was still trying to promote its post-revolutionary sort of nationalist programs. You know, when, when we think of Mexico, we think a lot of times from, a, you know, foreign perspective, we think of it as a very homogenous country, right? Mm -hmm. But it really has a lot of regional diversity in terms of indigenous communities and indigenous cultures. And after the Mexican Revolution, part of what the government set out to do was to really foment a national citizenry around a particular image of who the Mexican citizen was, the ideal Mexican citizen. Uh, and so for a lot of indigenous communities, they were targeted with education programs like fundamental education that would incorporate them uh, into this national citizenry by assimilation, right? Through the promotion of literacy programs that focused on literacy in Spanish uh, and uh, by promoting the types of uh, activities that would also uh, create or contribute to this national imagery. Really fascinating. And so in that sense, was it successful? Like, you know, from the logic of the project itself, from fundamental education, was it successful? You know, at least from Krafal's point of view. I mean, from Krefal's point of view, you know, following like the scientific method, right? And just having these pre-assessments and then having post-assessments and then seeing the improvements, you know, in the community and the changes, like, yes, there is success because now they have access, you know, or things were brought in that they didn't have or didn't know about, um, were not aware about. So there is that idea of success and that it contributed, you know, to the, you know, development of the community. And um, some of it includes like bringing in like fertilizers, right, synthetic fertilizers in order to make sure that they grow more crops and have more production so they can sell more or bringing in certain animals again, right, for um, economic reasons. And obviously there are ways that it was successful, right, that it continues to help. But there's other just the approach of it, too, um, I think is something to, you know, be critical about and question as well as like different like fishing techniques, right, and how Western I guess, or introduce technologies, they didn't come in with the idea of how to like integrate the technologies that exist in the community with those that are brought. It was more so like we're bringing you something because you don't have technologies, like you don't have anything, right? And with that perspective, you're contributing to assimilation. It's this idea that you're civilizing, right? Um, and that it doesn't highlight, you know, the culture, the traditions, the technologies, the in, like the intellectual knowledge that exists in those communities. Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating insight, how it sort of was this civilizing mission in a way, to use that term. I keep sitting here thinking, um, like I, I'm imagining people in UNESCO sitting around a table, looking at the reports and, and sort of saying, oh, look how great this project is. We've, you know, ticked this box, the number of, you know, students in school and the synth synthetic fertilizer. You know, I can imagine people doing that because, I mean, I think it still sort of happens to this day. But yet you're sort of bringing up that there was actually a level of, in a way, violence with what was actually going on in some of these communities that has a particular history and isn't reflected. That history isn't being reflected potentially in some of the sort of official history that, that we might know about. And so this brings me to something that you do in this article where you bring up these counter stories where you actually, you know, based on this archive that you 
uncovered and started exploring and the people you you knew and met in the community, you started getting stories and counter stories that sort of explained and showed other sides that might have been missed in this sort of official history that people in UNESCO were sitting around talking about. So what were some of these stories that you uncovered? And, you know, what were the different perspectives that you found to this sort of assimilation process through this regional center? I think one of the most important things was that uh, the general common sense history of the Crefal is that they were pretty much welcomed in the communities Mm -hmm. and that people were sort of enthusiastic and, and excited about what the Crefal was bringing. And, you know, some of the elders in the community that I spoke to shared that there was actually some resistance and apprehension to allowing the Crefal, you know, we call them core members, right? But the, the people who participated in this, in this organization to enter the communities. A lot of the communities were very protective of letting outsiders in, of, uh, of sharing their traditional knowledge fully and of allowing, you know, projects to just be created that for which it wasn't fully understood what the benefits of those projects would be. So, for example, there is an elder, Don Luis Rodriguez, in the piece that we uh, reference, shared that the Crefal wanted to start uh, or build a road up on top of one of the hills behind the community as a tourist site for people to visit and see the landscape you know, and, and appreciate the landscape from the hilltop. But the community resisted that and opposed it and never allowed that road to be constructed on the grounds that it would bring people from the outside in to visit. And it might have generated, you know, some in- tourist monies, but it would also generate trash. It would also generate, you know, people from other places coming into the community and like making it more open in ways that the community was not com- fully comfortable with. You also tell this story about this woman named Donna Albina and her sort of recollections of the synthetic fertilizer. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I guess I want to explain a little bit before we go into Doña Albina's story. Because Doña Albina and other the other uh, you know women that we mentioned in the article, they were actually, their names, you know were written and they're about their families and a thesis written by a student, you know, who was doing research about the Crefal in Ocutsepo, uh, Fernando Vasquez Rivera. And as we were looking at this, you know, we saw that they were just, there was like one line, you know, describing them and that was it in this like long, you know, thesis. And then as we were talking about, you know, all this research, I remember talking with, you know, Dr. Urieta about this and um, he's like, well, I talked to them, you know, um, they, sh- they got to share with me their stories. And then we looked at those and we saw like this stark difference. So just wanted to mention that. I mean, that's such a fascinating insight about sort of historical silences and how something like a PhD dissertation can silence a lot of voices, but then you can sort of uncover them and you start saying, oh my gosh, like what would the historical narrative be if these other voices would have been included? So what did you find when you started looking at all these women and their stories and their family stories from their perspectives? What did you find? Well, I think from the thesis, we would have gathered that they did mostly housework that they made tortillas, that they cleaned the house, that they helped their husbands in the fields, that they engaged in embroidery, 
and sold some of that to contribute to the family income. And, and that's about it. What we learned from these uh, women through the, the, the conversations that, that I was able to have with, her, with them was that they were very strong women, that they were very active uh, in community organizing, that they were, re that they're very opinionated about, you know, their, their views and what they stood up for, uh, that they challenged people in the community as things were changing in ways that were not in harmony with the ways that the community had always lived uh, and that they also had a presence that, you know, they, that they commanded respect in the community uh, in ways that, you know, a lot of times when we think of indigenous women from an outsider perspective, people don't really appreciate the roles and the strength and the, the types of ways in which indigenous women are active in their communities in very significant ways. So, so Doña Alvina, to start off, you know, shared with us that there was a comment in, in one of the conversations that the land was not producing the way it used to. And she said, you know, that's because, you know, the land has been burnt. And, and she commented that the land had, was burnt because of the excessive use of synthetic fertilizers. So going back into the archives and the history, we started looking into the role that Crefal played and other government programs played uh, in subsidizing synthetic fertilizer use and encouraging synthetic fertilizer use, including by initially providing it for free to local uh, subsistence farmers to the point that the land cannot produce anymore without synthetic fertilizers. So her comment related to that was that, you know, the land had been burnt through, mm. through these programs and through the ways in which the community in some ways, you know, fell into these, the use of these fertilizers through these programs. Also, she fought against the privatization of the communal mm. lands and later to the sale of the once privatized communal lands to the growing uh, agro, uh, the avocado agro export economy, uh, mainly to people, outsiders, who uh, saw this as an opportunity to buy plots of land that was formerly communal land uh, and to grow avocado on the, uh, and you know, for a long time, for many years, avocado imports from Mexico were banned by the U.S. Yeah. And those bans were lifted after NAFTA was passed, which led to the avocado boom in the area of, of Michoacan uh, and to the U.S. exclusively buying avocados, certified avocados produce from Michoacan up until very recently, which had people, you know, these avocado growers like pressuring local communities to sell more and more land to meet the growing demand for avocado consumption in the U.S. So she was directly opposed to all of that. She often talked about how she didn't, she never was in favor of her husband coming to work in the U.S., mm -hmm and that the quality of life for her in the community and her relationship to the land and the community itself was much more valuable than any money could, uh, you know, that could be made through, right. through working in the U.S. Uh, she was an important voice in, in the work that, that we did. I just, I love that so much because like what you've done is you've, you know, with one interview from, from someone who has sort of been silenced in these official narratives, you used it as sort of a perspective to then analyze this archive and sort of see something that you might have sort of missed without that perspective, without her insight, and then use that to sort of put it in this larger political economy of development, of, you know, educational projects. And I mean, it's just, it's so complex and, and you sort of unsettle some of the common assumptions that we might have about some of these development 
projects. But you know, you also said earlier that some people remember it in a positive way, and I, you know, I guess this sort of brings up this. You know, now that you've studied it and from many different angles, and you know, here's this program that that had this deficit model sort of built in. It had this assimilation to the ideal Mexican citizen. Was wrapped up in Cold War geopolitics. Was an experiment. You know, in in the most pejorative of senses. How, like on the whole, now that you've you've looked at this from so many different angles with voices that haven't weren't present previously, how do you manage that tension of of both good and bad potentially coming out of such a big program that to this day is still going on? To speak on some of like the the positive things or the things that you know the community sees as you know the positive impact part of your question, you know, bringing in like other, like, you know, clean water, right? Like having access to clean water. Also like, um, you know, access to like uh, other medical technologies, right? Because not, not to say that, well, what is in the community or what was in the community before Crefal um, wasn't a way, you know, for people to take care of themselves and heal themselves, right? But like even having access to newer technologies or learning about it, you know, that was another, like a positive thing. You know, I, they would have workshops and like, they would have like videos and like posters and like theater, right? That was their approach of teaching. And for some of them, they liked the people, right? Like they, sh I think they talk about like, I think in our conversations with Dr. Rita, it's like, they remember this lady, this senora from this country, you know, and they generally connected with some people, right? That doesn't mean that, because they were, you know, let's think somewhere, you know, well-intended, good intentions, but that doesn't mean like you're actually not doing harm. So there were positives in that terms. Yeah. With any institution, with anything, I think that we need to have nuance. We need to add complexity. You know, stories are not always clean, right? And without that complexity, without, without that nuance, I think we don't get a full picture. Uh, the picture that we get from the Crefal is that, you know, these communities and, and these community members were not exploiting their resources to the full potential. They were not fully, you know, making use of what they had. They could have had li better living conditions if they only knew how to do this or if they only knew how to do that. And I think that that's not the full picture, right? I mean, the full picture of these communities and the nuance that we're trying to add is related to a lot of indigenous communities have survived uh, and survived and thrived well despite centuries of colonialism, right? And then changing forms of colonialism with the nation building projects and then changing forms of colonialism with like international global programs like these, like fundamental education, which actually spread throughout the world, right? And later with neoliberal development programs. And for a lot of indigenous communities, development equates to a form of colonialism, even now, right? So I think that complexifying the story of the Crefal and highlighting the survivance of communities like Nocutzepo, despite, you know, these these waves of colonial uh, intrusion and which is what Elizabeth Huaman Sumida highlights and colonial debris also uh, helps us understand the nuance and the complexity of these issues. Mm. Right. Zooming out then from that particular story, what does this tell us about comparative education sort of as a field? 
I feel like I, I went back to, you know, rereading the the introductory um, paper that, you know, Prof. Eli wrote. And in there, um, there was a part where I was like, I stopped and I was like, yes, this is it. Because there has been research, right? Like, what's the purpose of all this, right? And she talks about how, like, research has been done, right? That has done, has written about communities from not their perspective, who has, you know, done the co-colonial gaze and all of that. And the purpose here is to rewrite and bring healing, right? And kind of like change those ideas and really highlight indigenous communities and their knowledge systems and their philosophies um, in ways that are respected, in ways that don't put them in danger, but in ways that really do rewrite or reframe how comparative education has written about them. And that it isn't just one like single story, right? But there's a multitude of stories and that indigenous communities are not just like all the same, but that, you know, they're very diverse. But at the end, there are also things that, you know, bring them together and like bring us together. So I think that it's about, you know, changing those narratives within the field too. Well, the academy itself is a product of colonialism. The production of knowledge in the Western Academy is not innocent. So who created the field of, of comparative education? What was the purpose of comparing? You know, what is the violence of comparison? And what are the, what are the outcomes? So who benefits from this? And I think all of that needs to be brought to light. All of that needs to be examined because, like I said, you know, there's an inherent violence in the production of knowledge, uh, because it's not the communities, like Judith said, that are, that are being consulted. It's not the community's ultimate benefit that's at stake here. So even as simple as like walking away with a degree, making a career, reaping the benefits and the privileges of what that means for individuals and for institutions, uh, needs to be questioned. Luis Urieta and Judith Landeros, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your article. Really fascinating. And I think it points to big directions that the field really needs to go in and sort of look at these counter stories and histories and bring out these silent voices to, to rethink what our history was and where we're going. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Luis Urieta is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, where Judith Landeros is a doctoral student. Their new article can be found in the Comparative Education Review. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Freshhead, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.